We call the time between the Old and New Testaments the 400 silent years. But was God truly silent during that time? What was going on then? And what can we learn from that time when He seems silent in our lives? Hi, I'm Yvonne Pran with Bible 805, where you learn to know, trust, and apply the Bible. We'll answer these questions today in our lesson entitled, The Time in Between the Testaments, How to Live in the In-Between Times and When It Seems God is Silent. From the close of the Old Testament to the start of the New Testament, it's a very different world. Now, if you're looking at the video or listening to the podcast, either one, I encourage you to look at the chart, the infographic that I've given you that shows the big changes. I'll go over it very briefly now, and then as soon as I get done with it, I'll show you how we got to this place. At the close of the Old Testament, Judea is under Persian rule, very moderate oversight they're rebuilding the temple and kind of moving along. But at the start of the New Testament, 400 years later, it's under Roman rule and very tightly controlled. When the Old Testament closes, a descendant of King David, Zerubbabel, was the leader, though he wasn't formally a king. In the New Testament, something completely unimagined has happened. Esau, a descendant of his, Herod the Great, is now king of the Jews. Really a shocking development. At the close of the Old Testament, we have a very modest temple, but it's rebuilt. And one of Aaron's descendants, as it should be, is a high priest. In the New Testament, though, again 400 years later, the temple is monumental. It's huge. It's really fancy. It's really ornate. And unfortunately, the high priest has now become a political position. The close of the Old Testament, the Old Testament itself was primarily in Hebrew, and unfortunately, fewer and fewer people were able to read it. At the opening of the New Testament, though, the Old Testament's now in Greek, and it's accessible to everyone, which is a good thing. <laughs> With some of the other negative things, this is one of the good ones. The change, too, is just in the center of worship. At the close of the Old Testament, it was the temple. It was totally the temple. But by the time we get to the New Testament, yes, the temple's important, but for most people, their local synagogue is where they really learn about and worship God. At the close of the Old Testament, the teachers were prophets and scribes. But in the New Testament, we have a whole group of religious leaders now that nobody would ever heard of, including Pharisees, Sadducees, and Essenes. Now let's look at how did we get all these changes? How did they all come about? We're going to talk about those next in our lesson, along with some analysis of what it means when we say that these are the 400 silent years. Were they really silent? And how should we apply the situation when it seems like God isn't really speaking to us? So let's get started on the history. Now, step by step, how the various changes happened. All of this, to put it in perspective, took place over 500 years. As the additional infographic, the chart that I'm giving you and what I'm going to talk through 
begins with the last of the prophets. Now, the actual time, though, between the close of the writing of the Old Testament and the New Testament is around 400 years. Now, think of it this way to put it in perspective. The United States is about 247 years old at the time of my uh, recording this, uh, this lesson. So about double our remembered history is the length of time that we're talking about and think about how much our nation has changed now here's where here's the problem we run into when we're studying the bible we see all these bible pictures and it kind of boils down to i was thinking about it sort of just a whole um issue of wardrobe um People dress the same back in the days of Abraham, which quite honestly is the same way people in the Middle East dress today. But think of how much things have changed. And there were a huge number of changes, too, between what happened in Old Testament times and New Testament times. But we tend to think that it was relatively the same, just because the pictures all look the same. But it was very, very different. And so that is something that we need to change in our thinking. Now, let's look at the different areas. The, or the different time frames that I have in the chart. The first one is from 538 to 336 BC. This was when Persia ruled, the Jews were allowed to return to the land. It's what's known as the Second Temple Period. This is the final time of history after the Babylonian exile that's told in the historical books of Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. The people are now back in the land. Never again well, they fall into idol worship or worship other gods. But that doesn't mean they're wholehearted in their worship of the true God. Sloppy worship, neglecting the temple, the neglecting supporting the priests, marrying pagan women, all characterize this time. And all of these issues are recorded in the last prophets, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. And then the writing of the Old Testament ceases. But though the prophets, the spoken prophets, are silent for 400 years, a lot is still going on in Israel. From 336 to 323, the big event, of course, is that Alexander appears on the scene and he conquers that entire area. And he gives those that he conquers really relative freedom. Greek becomes their universal language, though Aramaic is still spoken at home. And very little Hebrew, though, is spoken except by some of the priests. During this and the previous time, the synagogues were really spreading. The temple had been destroyed, and between the time that it was destroyed and rebuilt, the synagogues where if you had at least 10 Jewish men, you started a synagogue, and that's where local preaching and teaching and studying God's word took place. When Alexander dies, sadly his kingdom is split into four parts, but it's pretty good for Israel for a little over a hundred years because the person who gets Israel Judea is Ptolemy, who rules from Egypt, and he was a good guy. From 323 to 198 BC, the Ptolemies had control of Judea. 
Ptolemy was a benevolent ruler. He admired the Jews. He encouraged learning and scholarship. He gathers scholars, books. He creates a great library of Alexandria. Greek, as already mentioned, is the universal language. And actually, Ptolemy, actually, uh, Ptolemy II, the first Ptolemy's son, initiated the translation of the Hebrew Bible into Greek, which we know as the Septuagint. It becomes the scripture quoted in the New Testament by Jesus and the other writers. Now, the Apocrypha's creation also comes about at this time and continues through early New Testament times. Now, it's very, very important, though, to remember that the Apocrypha was never accepted as part of the Jewish canon. Please see the lesson on the Apocrypha in Bible805.com for more detailed information on that. I think you'll find that lesson really quite interesting. But it was, though this was a time of peace and learning, it didn't last. As another one of Alexander's generals from the Seleucid family, he is feeling really greedy and wants to take over Israel, which he does, and that is a bad thing. The Seleucids take control of Judea. They very harshly suppress the Jews. Now, in contrast to Ptolemy's admiration of the Jews, Antiochus III and his son Antiochus IV Epiphanes, they wanted to erase all things Jewish and replace them with all things Greek. They suppressed Jewish culture, customs, and worship. They slaughtered those who didn't comply, and ultimately they offered a pig on the altar of the temple. Hellenization, the promotion of all things Greek, was forced on the people, though at the same time it was kind of popular with quite a few of the people. But as happens with most tyrants, their real cruelty and suppression, it didn't last, and a Jewish rebellion took place. Briefly, from 140 to 63-37 BC, depending upon exactly how you count it, the Jews were independent under the Hasmonean dynasty. This, The rebellion that instituted this was led by the Maccabees, and after years of bloody battles, they finally took control of the nation. Their cleansing of the temple and God miraculously allowing the lights to burn for seven days is celebrated today as Hanukkah. They established a short-lived dynasty known as the Hasmonean dynasty, but it wasn't really universally popular, as they did tend towards admiring the Greeks and towards Hellenization, even though they wanted to be in charge. The Sadducees favored the whole thing. They supported that. The Pharisees that had developed at this time did not. The Essenes, they just withdrew. But the people of Judea couldn't stop fighting. There was constant wars, constant battles, constant chaos, and finally, Rome steps in. They've had it. They're fed up. They take over, and they are the ones that approve the Herodian dynasty coming in and from 63 BC through New Testament times, they are the ones that are in control. No longer do we have a, a king that's in the line of David. No longer do we have a high priest who is in the line of Aaron. Again, the rising power of the world was Rome. They step in, they take over Jerusalem. Now, they're relatively kind to the Jews. The Jews didn't like it. They constantly complained. They didn't like being taxed. But they weren't really oppressed until, of course, 70 A.D., when they had enough 
of the Jewish rebellion, and they come in and destroy everything. But the Romans didn't really care for or admire the Jews and their religious or historical sensibilities. It was a difficult time, in part because they gave the kingship to Herod, who was a descendant of Esau, and so this was just a huge insult to the Jews. The priesthood becomes the political office primarily responsible for keeping the people in line. So who were the groups then that the groups of the time with, since there wasn't any overall priest or prophet speaking, who was legitimate and the synagogue was the the main area of worship for the people, who was in control? Who taught the people? What was going on? Well, let's look at it. First of all, and probably the most important, were the Pharisees. They were known as, the name Pharisee means separated ones. They came into being after the Maccabean Revolt. They were really opposed to all of the Hellenizing influences of the time. They didn't want people to become Greek in their thinking. They wanted them to stay Jewish, to stay true to the Old Testament. Now, they accepted not only the written Torah, the first five books of the Bible, but they also accepted the oral Torah, the commentaries on it, and they loved to debate. They loved to talk about it. And Jesus, when he entered into the discussions with them, he is really following the pattern of the Pharisees where he would say, have you not read? And he would talk about stuff, and they would go, have you not read? Doesn't it say this? And it wasn't really, in many cases, as adversarial as it seems to us. That was just how people debated. They believed in angels, demons, and the afterlife. They were the teachers. They were the rabbis. And though often strict, they were very popular with the people. And modern Judaism really comes from them. However, Despite their good intentions, Jesus frequently challenged them. And one time, some of the Pharisees came to Jesus and they said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? They don't wash their hands before they eat. And Jesus replied, And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God says, Honor your father and mother, and anyone who curses their father and mother is to be put to death. But you say, if anyone declares what might have been used for their help, to help their father or mother is devoted to God. They're not to honor their father and mother with it. Thus you nullify the word of God for the sake of your tradition. In this instance, and many others, Jesus answered them from their scriptures. Now, we always need to be sure that we're living what we say we believe and living it with kindness and compassion. When you do something, make sure it's based on God's word and that you live it out, obeying his, what of course he said is the greatest law to love God and love your neighbor. Always put those things in context. Yet, even though they did a lot of things that maybe they were too strict in some areas, not strict enough in others. Their biblical foundation, their love of God's word, their honest desire to follow him produced some of our most famous early Christian leaders, including, of course, Nicodemus and the Apostle Paul, who remember later on in his life, was not afraid to say, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee. He never was ashamed of his heritage. Then there were the scribes there. They're often linked to the Pharisees, but they were actually a distinctly different group. They were the writers, the experts in the law. Literally, 
the scribes for all the writing that needed to be done in a community. They were often equivalent to judges and lawyers in their community because of their knowledge, because they were the ones who handled all legal matters. They became experts in what the law required and what they felt were the demands of tradition. Jesus, though, often disagreed with them when he talked about adding tradition to the Word of God. And then there were the Sadducees. They arose around 200 BC as a political party, but they claimed their descent from the priestly line of Zadok, an earlier high priest. And other people said, no, that's not really true. They're just saying that. But that's that's what they said. They tended to be very wealthy. They were landed aristocracy. They embraced the whole Hellenistic life. They only accepted, or this is what they said, but they said they only accepted the first five books of the Old Testament and none of the oral tradition. Based on that, they did not believe in angels, demons, or an afterlife. They said that that wasn't in those first five books. Now, a little funny saying that uh, helps people remember what they believed is because they didn't believe in angels, demons, or the afterlife. Uh, Sunday school teachers for years have said that was why they were sad, you see. Sadducees, get it? Yeah, I know it's a little bit corny, but anyway, that might help you remember. Now, my comment on this, they always say that um, they didn't believe in these things because they weren't in the five books of the Old Testament. Well, I totally disagree with that. Um, I think, you know, they had a complete... in completely incorrect view of the Torah. Please see my lessons on Bible 805 on Job and Genesis. I have two lessons, answers to the big question of life for how these books cover the topics of both um, demons, angels, the afterlife. All of these things are very clear in those books. And so um, check it out to see that they, uh, in many ways, they sort of created a straw man. They just didn't want to follow God. And so they wanted to do what they wanted to do, and in my humble opinion, that was their excuse, but they were not correct, and they have completely faded from history. Now, Jesus' confrontation with them, uh, this is really an important one. Uh, One day, one of the Sadducees came to him with a question, teacher, they said, Moses told us that if a man dies without having children, and his, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for him. Now there were seven brothers, and he goes on, they all died, then whose wife should she be in the resurrection? And Jesus just nails them. He just says, you are in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. At the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. But about the resurrection of the dead, have you not read? And this is like what I said, you know, if you go back right to the Torah, right to what they said they believed, have you not read what God said to you, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. It's an extremely important warning for us and the answer, I think, for all of the problems of life where Jesus says, you are in error because you don't know the scriptures.
Then there were the Essenes. They primarily just wanted to retreat from the world. They arose around 100 BC. They literally died out. They were all destroyed, as far as we can tell, in 70 AD when Rome came in and just wiped out so many people. Most likely, we wouldn't even know about them, except it seems that they were the ones who preserved the Dead Sea Scrolls. And so when the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered, we discovered the Essenes. And then there were the Zealots. They were a group who varied in their beliefs, but overall, they just all wanted to overthrow Rome. Some advocated more violence than others. And it's interesting, though, that Jesus had both Simon the Zealot, who wanted to overthrow Rome, and Matthew the tax collector, who supported Rome as his disciples. And I think that the Lord was doing this as a reminder to us that our primary loyalty and citizenship so surpasses any political inclinations we might have. Our primary citizenship is in the kingdom of God. Now, this was not the first time these quote-unquote 400 silent years in the history of God's people that the prophets were not speaking directly to them. There were numerous times that God did not send prophets to verbally share new messages with the people. We don't have much recorded except for the flood in Noah between the fall and the call of Abraham. We don't have a lot of prophets talked about then. We don't have any new prophets recorded while their people were slaves in Egypt, and that was a 400-year time. And we don't have scriptures in written form until after the Exodus from 1446 BC on. And, of course, we don't have any new messages to us in the 2,000 years since Jesus went back to heaven. But, That doesn't mean that God is silent now or that he was in any of these other times because God is never silent. There are three ways that he's always speaking. Number one, it tells us, the Bible tells us, the heavens declare the glory of God. And our world, the heavens in our world, they declare his glory, and that never ceases. We just look outside, we look at the beauty of creation, and we can see our God. Now, in my humble opinion, if you're looking at the video, the succulents that you see in this picture, this is my part of my little garden. I collect succulents. I love succulents. And to me, how can someone look at them? They're little living sculptures, and they just sort of burst forth in these incredible shapes. And how can you not believe in a creator and in an incredibly creative and inventive and beautifully wonderful creator just by looking at little succulents. And second, of course, he speaks through his word. The word of God is alive and active. And when we read it, it speaks to us. It cuts into our hearts. Now, people at that time had the completed Old Testament in these, quote unquote, 400 silent years, including the prophecy in Daniel of all that would happen during this entire time. And I'll show that to you in a minute. And then, of course, we have the Holy Spirit who has always been present. 
convicting unbelievers, guiding, comforting believers. Now he indwells us, but he was present and active during the Old Testament, during the in-between times as well. Now, let's just look at how God's word was the roadmap for the intertestamental times. People at that time had the completed Old Testament, including the prophecy in Daniel of all that would happen in the coming years until Jesus would come. It was available now in the Greek Septuagint, and anybody who could read Greek or could have it read to them, which they could have in any of their local synagogues, they could understand it. Daniel had this dream, an image of a statue that predicted the various world powers that would come between the time Daniel lived and Jesus, until Jesus' birth. There was Babylon, then Media and Persia, then Greece, and then Rome. And it was very clearly spelled out when they would come, what would happen, everything about them. It was a clear and comforting roadmap for those who were willing to read it. He has that same thing for us in his word. Now, maybe we don't have the political detail that they had back then, but we know that this present world system is going to end. And it will end when Jesus returns with his eternal rule and reign. Just as surely as all of those prophecies came true, so are the ones that we are promised in the New Testament. I think a much better term than silent years is what I like to call it is we're living in an in-between time. In between, when Jesus died on the cross and he said, it is finished, he conquered sin and death. And then the other end of this in-between time is our eternal outcome and that of our world. It's not in doubt. He is coming back. This world will be renewed. He will reign forever. And yet, it's obvious our world is not under his control. We live in between the incredible importance of what Jesus' death accomplished on the cross and when he'll wrap it up in human history. Now, as is often the case, how are we supposed to live during this time? What are we supposed to do? Well, C.S. Lewis described it really well when he said, enemy-occupied territory, that's what this world is. Christianity is a story of how the rightful king is landed, you might say, landed in disguise, and is calling us all to take part in a great campaign of sabotage. That really describes it well. Our rightful king has landed, he's conquered, but we don't have full possession of the land yet. He is not in charge. To expand this idea, I think our life is very similar to that of the French resistance between D-Day and the end of the war. The outcome of the war was not in doubt, but there were still many battles for them to fight until the Allies occupied Paris, just as there are for us between when Jesus died on the cross and his return for us. Now here's some suggestions on how to fight them well. Most importantly, realize you're in a war. This is important because a lot of Christians don't. They just think they're here to be happy and sort of coast along and they've got their uh, their fire escape plan, you know, when they accepted Jesus as Savior and they're not going to hell and so they can just do whatever they want to do. But no, Jesus in Luke eleven twenty three in the message translation was pretty blunt about it when he said, this is war. There's no neutral ground. If you're not on my side, you're the enemy. If you're not helping, you're making things worse. 
And Ephesians 6.12 also reminds us, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against rulers of darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. When you realize you're in a war, and you are, you won't be so surprised when challenges come. Now, for some tips on how to fight well, let's look briefly at what the French Resistance did. I have a poster of uh, that, that they created where it showed how in 1939 there weren't very many people fighting against the Nazis and how by 1944 it was a huge army that was resisting. And here's just a little bit of a summary of some of the things that they did. Though their guerrilla tactics and communication projects might appear small in the larger scheme of the war, they were vital to the overall victory. A rail line blown up, a road blocked, a bridge destroyed, a population encouraged to resist by wireless messages, a poster, a newsletter with a message to not give up, to hold on till victory arrived. Each and every action made an immeasurable difference in the outcome of the war. They knew if they were caught, torture, imprisonment, and death awaited them. They were not given the honor of a captured soldier. When caught, they were brutalized by the German army that they had successfully defeated again and again. A number of them committed suicide in prison rather than give up the names of their comrades under torture. This and many other thoughts on this topic are from my book that, like I said, is in progress. It's entitled Tetelestai, If the Battle's Over, Why is Life So Hard? They did whatever they could, though, wherever, whenever they could. And a challenge for us, I think, is really summed up in Matthew 6.33, where it says, But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. The message translation puts it this way, Steep your life in God reality, God initiative, God provisions. Don't worry about missing out. You'll find all your everyday human concerns will be met. There are many things which seem important, seem essential, which may be very good things, but that take away the limited time you have to get to know God and his word better and better and to share his love with our world. The application is pray for discernment in your life to choose the best over which isn't, isn't just not sinful and good. There's also a warning to us when we look at how people reacted at this time, because instead of fighting, some chose to be collaborators. They sided with the Nazis. Let me describe them here. It may have started as simply not standing up for a Jewish neighbor. For some, it progressed until they oppressed, betrayed, and sometimes killed friends and neighbors now labeled enemies by Germany. Perhaps the money was too good, perhaps their fear too great. Collaboration seemed like the smart thing to do, until it was not. Collaborators do well when a war is raging. They're despised when it's over. People who, if people who don't believe in Jesus, or who aren't living for him, seem to have a much easier, more prosperous life, that might be entirely true. Those outside the faith might be prospering greatly. They don't have an enemy fighting them. They aren't involved in the war. But that won't last. You always have a choice as how to act. I have two pictures on the video. 
that um, I hope you you check this out. They that one of them is of women being marched out by some of the French resistance troops at the end of the war. And I didn't show the really sad and kind of awful things of what would happen right after this. They were taken to a place where they their heads were were shaved, and that was sort of the way of showing that they had collaborated with the Nazis. And we we might feel pity for them, which of course we do. Anyone who is deceived and becomes a collaborator, that is tragic. But they didn't have to do that. Along with that, I have a book about, it's entitled Three Ordinary Girls, and it was about women who were in the Dutch resistance. And the subtitle of the book is The Remarkable Story of Three Dutch Teenagers Who Became Spies, Saboteurs, Nazi Assassins, and World War II Heroes. You always have a choice as to how to act, no matter how heavy, how difficult, how challenging the war is that you might be going through. Now, to keep us from being a collaborator, remember you aren't alone. C.S. Lewis also had this wonderful encouragement where he says, when you go to church, you're really listening in to the secret wireless from our friends. That's why the enemy is so anxious to prevent us from going. He does it by playing on our conceit and laziness and intellectual snobbery. Getting together with other Christians is so important. Being around like-minded people, encouraging each other, learning together, and reminding each other that one day the battles will be over as the silent years will come to an end. Perhaps today's not that day and perhaps tomorrow's not that day. And for every day God keeps you in the battle, you'll be faced with choices. To spend time in God's word or not, to obey a challenge from the Bible or tell yourself, oh, another time, you'll break that bad habit. To joyfully trust and be kind when you wanted to just ignore a need or take a nap. Decide now, today, that you will make decisions because you never know how important they might be. It might not seem like a big deal what you decide to do, but let me just tell you one last little story that's kind of interesting. Years ago, a Sunday school teacher decided he was going to get really forceful about sharing the gospel with one of his students. He dropped out of school. Um, he was working at a shoe store, and he met the young man at the shoe store, and he worked really hard to convince him that Jesus loved him and he challenged him to become a Christian. Now, the boy he shared with never completed fifth grade. That's why he was working when he was still quite young. He couldn't spell, never did learn how to spell. He had terrible grammar when he spoke, and he was known throughout a lot of his life as a troublemaker. But he believed his Sunday school teacher, and once he knew Jesus' love, he wanted everybody to know the Jesus he came to trust. It said that he committed to not let a day go by that he didn't tell someone about Jesus. That troublemaker was D.L. Moody. He became one of the greatest evangelists of his day and the founder of the Moody Bible Institute. In his day, without the internet or mass media of any kind, he died in 1899. It's estimated he led over one million people to Jesus. God is never truly silent, and neither is what we do in our lives. A friend reminded me, and I can't even remember the situation, but he said, remember Russell Crowe's statement in Gladiator where he said, what we do in life echoes throughout eternity. 
how we conduct ourselves in the battles before our rightful king makes his authority known is important to ourselves and to our world. What we say or do to create echoes throughout eternity matters. Determine now that you will begin to do today what you want to celebrate, what you want to be known for when our rightful king takes possession of his earth and he is silent no more. That's all for now. Please check out the show notes and other materials at www.bible805.com. The charts are there. Download them. Share them with others. Um, Lots of useful stuff that you can make your own to share in classes or just however you want to share it. Until next time, I'm Yvonne Pran, your fellow pilgrim, writer, and teacher for Jesus. And I'd like to close with this benediction. May you know the invitation of God to move from confusion to clarity from wandering to rest, from loneliness to knowing you are loved, from turmoil to peace, from wherever you are on your spiritual journey to a growing knowledge of God's Word and in your personal relationship with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.